Tis the season to shine with H&M. Discover the holiday collection and find fashionable pieces for your wardrobe or for under the tree. Get inspired and dazzle with this year's glam. From tuxedo styles, bow detailed pieces, impressive prints, and more. From unforgettable looks to unforgettable gifts. With fashion finds to home decor, find it all at H&M. Treat your loved ones and yourself this season. Shop in-store or at hm.com. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa. I'm your host, Andy. So, before we begin, I'd just like to quickly announce that, from now on, I'm going to be doing shorter weekly episodes instead of longer bi-weekly episodes. This allows me to push out more content and be more flexible with my episode creation. Now, without further ado, let's begin. Episode 3, Egypt Before the Pharaohs. Today, we're going to be discussing the early history of the land of Egypt and learning about the mysterious origins of one of the world's most ancient civilizations. As we discussed in our last episode, northern and eastern Africa have been populated by humans for about as long as modern Homo sapiens have existed. Hunter-gatherers migrated back and forth across the old Sahara grasslands, following herds of animals that they hunted. But, as the Sahara grew more arid every year, the savannah became sand, and the herds of animals gradually disappeared, meaning that the Saharan peoples would have to find a new place to live. Some of these people eventually came to settle in the Nile River Valley, where they encountered a few small groups of people on the verge of a world-altering breakthrough. So, now I get an opportunity to talk more about geography. Yes, I'm sure you're tired of hearing about it and just want me to get to history. This isn't called the Geography of Africa podcast, after all, so I'll try to make it brief. Anyways, the modern nation of Egypt centers around the Nile River. But, if you look at a map of Egypt today, you'll notice that the country almost resembles a square in terms of its inland borders. There are vast stretches of desert to the east and west of the Nile, with the occasional oasis town or coastal city in between. Now, I want you to forget about all of that. Throughout every discussion of Egypt from now until the modern era, Egypt will refer to essentially just the Nile River and its banks. The ancient Egyptians called this land Kemet, meaning black land, referring to the region's dark, fertile soil. The desert was known as Deshret, or red land, and was largely seen as being a place of death and chaos, somewhere to be avoided and somewhere foreign. While sure, the ancient Egyptians did occasionally interact with and even integrate the people of these desert oases. For the most part, Egyptian civilization can be confined entirely to the Nile Valley. Egyptians grew their crops on the banks of the Nile. They built their cities and homes along the Nile. They washed their clothes in the Nile and transported goods and people up and down the Nile. In a sense, the Nile River is an engine that powers Egyptian civilization. The Egyptians also understood their geography in terms of the Nile. In our culture today, we associate the direction of north with up. Most of our maps portray the northern hemisphere on top of the southern hemisphere. However, this concept would be entirely foreign to the ancient Egyptians. To the Egyptians, up, in the geographical sense, meant up the Nile River. And remember that most of the water in the Nile originates to the south of Egypt, in the Ethiopian highlands. Therefore, when the Egyptians drew maps, they put the south on top. This is important, because throughout this episode, you'll hear me refer to large subsections of Egypt as Upper and Lower. Lower Egypt was in the north, around what we call the Nile Delta region. 
Today, this region is the center of most of Egypt's population, as it includes the nation's biggest cities, Cairo and Alexandria. However, in ancient times, Lower Egypt was far less populous than its southern counterpart. The most important urban centers of early Egyptian civilization existed in Upper Egypt, and as we'll come to see, this was usually the dominant region in early Egyptian history. As the Saharan peoples migrated into Egypt, they encountered a culture on the verge of a massive civilizational breakthrough. These prehistoric Egyptians practiced a transitional mode of subsistence. They had not yet perfected agriculture and were still hunter-gatherers. They ate a diet that consisted mostly of wild grains and meats, but also relied heavily on the catching of fish from the Nile. However, what distinguishes these people from other hunter-gatherers is that they went to great lengths to ensure the cultivation of wild grains, which they would then gather later. The people of prehistoric Egypt grew to rely less and less on hunting and gathering to fuel their diets, and instead relied more on the regular grain harvest to sate their hunger. As their lifestyle became centered more around the grain, their lifestyles became gradually more sedentary or focused on one place. Rather than migrating from field to field, instead, small groups would just lay claim to one field and cultivate it regularly to maximize its output. This was still not a form of agriculture as we know it, as they did not cultivate the grain in organized rows or use any form of irrigation, but they were just on the precipice. The migrants from the Sahara were joined by another group of migrants, this one from the Middle East. Scholars had long believed that these Middle Eastern peoples were responsible for the introduction of true agriculture in Egypt, but I'm skeptical of this claim. Based on how close the prehistoric Egyptians were to true agriculture, I find it more likely that they developed it independently, and that these migrants instead only introduced new methods, rather than inventing the concept outright. These three groups, Saharans, prehistoric Egyptians, and migrants from the Middle East, formed a sort of ethnic melting pot they would eventually become the people of ancient Egypt. Now, these groups were likely quite different in a few ways, but there was one thing that we know for certain that they all practiced, and that was a strict adherence to egalitarianism. These Saharan, Egyptian, and Middle Eastern peoples were all hunter-gatherers, and among hunter-gatherers there is a pervasive commitment to equality among both the sexes and classes. Usually, there is little to no organized hierarchy, with leadership positions usually falling to any individual who takes initiative at that moment. Economically, most hunter-gatherer societies practice a gift economy, in which the resources are shared between members of a tribe or band, so that each member has enough resources to live. Obviously, there isn't perfect equality, but generally these hunter-gatherer societies are far more egalitarian than even our modern industrialized societies, much less a Neolithic city-state. Around 6000 BC, there was an explosion of agricultural settlements throughout the Nile Valley. As the people of Neolithic Egypt became increasingly reliant on agriculture, they began to flock to larger settlements, exponentially increasing the population. However, this led to the emergence of a problem for these new societies. Agriculture, especially before the development of more advanced techniques, is incredibly fragile. During a good harvest, everyone in the settlement will be incredibly well-fed, and more migrants will be attracted. However, not every year is a good harvest. Now, if you're a small familial group of hunter-gatherers, this wouldn't really be a problem. You've stored enough grain from previous harvests that you can just consume that instead until the harvests improve. But, as people consolidated into agricultural settlements, 
the amount of food necessary to feed the growing population exploded. This increased need for food could be satisfied during a good harvest, but only at the expense of the grain stores. There are two solutions to these problems. The first is the development of more advanced irrigation systems. Every year in May, a series of monsoons hit the Ethiopian highlands, resulting in a huge flood of water into the Nile River. Early on, Egyptians would simply plant their crops in the inundated land as the flood receded, but this limits the amount of land you can use, as well as the amount of time you can use it before the next flood comes and destroys your crops. In order to fix this problem, the Egyptians created a new system called basin irrigation. In this system, a small dam would be constructed to divert water from the river into a small basin of land, where it would inundate the land before being diverted back to the river. This system allowed for a much larger section of land to be arable, but also required an organized and coordinated workforce to finish such a complicated project. The ability to coordinate the construction of irrigation projects commands a huge amount of power, and anyone with the influence to do so was immediately the most powerful person in the settlement. The other solution to the problem of agricultural variance is agricultural consolidation. After all, if you control two fields and one has a bad harvest, you can just rely on the other until your second field starts to produce food again. However, this leads to a problem. What if the next field over is owned by another settlement, or by a tribe of hunter-gatherers? How come they get to have all that grain while we have regular famines? We have a much larger population, so why don't we just, you know, take it? This era of pre-dynastic Egypt is when war as we know it is born. As these conflicts escalated in frequency, and the need for irrigation grew steeper, it brought with it an increasingly strict hierarchy. Local tribal leaders could increasingly consolidate their power through their ability. Local tribal leaders could increasingly consolidate their power through the ability to organize a militia to conquer weaker settlements or build new irrigation projects. The old culture of these agricultural settlements, derived from the egalitarian nature of their hunter-gatherer ancestors, was abandoned in favor of a rigid hierarchy. These settlements evolved into small city-states, or as the Egyptians would eventually know them, gnomes, with nomarchs as the titles of their leaders. To further increase their power and legitimacy, nomarchs tied their identities to pre-existing spiritual beliefs. Their legitimacy no longer came from their ability to raise a large army and defend the grain yields. Nomarchs now derived their legitimacy from supernatural means. The emergence of this early form of religions had major effect on the role of women. While in hunter-gatherer societies, women are viewed as equal partners in labor. A notion emerged in the pre-dynastic period that associated women with spirituality and fertility. As a result, a rigid structure of gender roles emerged, with women being viewed as sacred objects of fertility. Statuettes constructed by the pre-dynastic Egyptians depict female idols as the primary object of religious worship usually with especially large breasts and wide hip to highlight their association with fertility. So, as I'm sure you've noticed, the transition from hunting and gathering to agricultural societies wasn't necessarily a positive experience for the generations of people that lived through it. Hunter-gatherers transitioned from egalitarian societies to hierarchical societies, from superstitious to religious, from mostly peaceful to incredibly warlike. In addition to the societal transformations, the settled people physically transformed as well. Due to their reliance on grain fields, settled people had a less varied and less nutritious diet than hunter-gatherers, and were as a result shorter and less healthy. Life in an agricultural settlement, 
was also more crowded, and therefore more disease-prone, than the migratory lifestyle. And finally, to top it all off, settled peoples worked longer and harder than hunter-gatherers to achieve these inferior living standards. So then, why did this change happen? If the hunter-gatherers live such superior lives than settled people, why did they choose to settle? Well, the answer to this puzzling question is complicated and controversial. If you ask 10 anthropologists about this problem, you'll get 11 answers. So, I'll just say my own personal theory. Just keep in mind that this is my own view, so don't take it as gospel. Personally, I see the adoption of agriculture as not an en masse decision to abandon hunting and gathering, but instead sort of a lifestyle trap. The adoption of a semi-sedentary lifestyle was initially beneficial, as it acted as a supplement to an otherwise normal hunter-gatherer lifestyle. However, the negative effects of such a lifestyle only became apparent after they became increasingly reliant on their grain fields, and by then it was too late. Once these hunter-gatherers were completely reliant on their grain, they couldn't return to their old ways. The initial population boom that occurred with the early adoption of grain had already increased their numbers beyond the ability to support themselves through hunting and gathering. Thus, they were stuck in the trap of agriculture, forced to forever chase an ever-growing crop yield to feed themselves. Regardless of your opinion on the cause of the adoption of agriculture, I think it's interesting to acknowledge the fact that, overall, the lives of individuals got worse as a result of this lifestyle change. I think it's important to be skeptical of narratives that human nature is inherently violent and selfish, as this was not accurate throughout the majority of our human existence. The systems of hierarchy and violence that we think of as being natural actually emerged with our reliance on grain and not from a built-in mechanism of our nature. By 4000 BC, the peoples of pre-dynastic Egypt were each part of three overarching cultures. Two of these existed in Lower Egypt, near the Delta region. The first to emerge was the Elomari culture. Very little is known about these people, besides that they lived in small settlements of dugout huts, and that the primary and that the family unit was the primary mode of opening. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame Stories wherever you get your podcasts. Very little is known about these people, besides that they lived in small settlements of dugout huts, and that the family unit was the primary mode of social organization. For agriculture, these people used tools made of threshed reeds and stone. Most lower Egyptian people belonged to a culture known as the Mahdi. Due to their close proximity to the Mediterranean, artifacts they created closely resembled those of ancient Syria and Palestine. Due to this similarity, we can tentatively assume that these people likely spoke a Semitic language and had a significant proportion of Middle Eastern ancestry. There is evidence of some forms of primitive metallurgy among the Mahdi people, including the creation of copper adzes and other tools. Mahdi grave sites are relatively bare, with few possessions being buried with the body. This implies that Mahdi nomarchs were relatively poor, and that Lower Egypt was divided between numerous city-states rather than a few dominant powers. Like the Elomaris, 
Mahdi buildings were mostly dugout huts constructed of reeds. However, some archaeologists have speculated that Mahdi and El Omari's settlements were actually much larger than we thought, but the Delta region's propensity for devastating floods has destroyed the evidence for such constructions. In Upper Egypt is where we find the most important of Proto-Egyptian cultures, known as the Nakata. So, why are the Nakata so important? Well, they form the cultural backbone of what would eventually become Egyptian civilization. Many of the things we culturally associate with ancient Egypt today, like their strong focus on the afterlife, an early form of hieroglyphics, and mud-brick architecture, find their origin in the Nakata culture. The first ancient Egyptian-style tombs also appear in the Nakata culture, and there's evidence that the Nakata buried certain animals in a funerary style. These careful burials imply that these animals held an incredibly important role in Nakata religious belief. They might also be the origin of two important aspects of ancient Egyptian religion, the presence of animal-headed deities and the veneration of cats. They also serve as evidence of an early origin for two important aspects of ancient Egyptian religion, the presence of animal-headed deities and the veneration of cats. By 3500 BC, the number of gnomes in Upper Egypt was decreasing rapidly as larger gnomes swallowed up smaller ones. Where once there were hundreds, now there were only a few dozen. Populations had dramatically consolidated, with settlements becoming major cities. Some of the largest cities during this period reached populations exceeding 5,000, which might not sound like much today, but was massive for the time. This period of political and social consolidation is known as the Second Nakata Period, and is when the first true states begin to appear in the Egyptian region. This period also shows a marked increase in the influence of the Near East on Egyptian culture. For example, the Jebel el Arak knife, an artifact from the ancient city of Abydos, shows a tremendous degree of Near Eastern influence in its stylistic carvings on the blade's handle. Pottery from this period also looks more similar to Middle Eastern styles than pottery from previous periods. For a long time, historians believed that the appearance of these Near Eastern motifs were due to an invasion or migration of people from the Near East into Egypt. However, there is no compelling evidence that such an invasion ever took place. It is more likely that Egyptians were introduced to these motifs by trade on the Mediterranean, rather than through conquest, as pottery in the Near East around this time also shows a significant increase in Egyptian influence. The next period of Egyptian history is known as the Third, or Final Nakata period, Lower Egypt was likely still ruled by dozens of small city-states, but, by 3200 BC, this consolidation had turned Upper Egypt into a sort of triumvirate, with only three city-states controlling the whole of the region. The first of these cities was the southernmost city of Nechen. Due to its far southern position, this city had little Middle Eastern influence compared to the cities further down the Nile. Rather, it derived much of its culture from the nearby Nubians, a people to the south of Egypt. Pottery from this period of the city include none of the markings of Near Eastern styles, but are very reminiscent of Nubian styles, for example. During this period, there was a gradual decline in the worship of female fertility gods. In their stead, each city worshipped a local protector deity. Nechen's guardian god was known as Nechani, or the Hawk. The city is also speculated to be the wealthiest of the three major cities in Upper Egypt, due to how the burial sites from this city exceed all others from this time in terms of extravagance. The next city we'll discuss is called Nakata. This city is where the Nakata culture derives its name. So, in order to avoid confusion, I'll refer to this city by its alternative name, Nekaterian, for the remainder of the podcast. 
Nekaterian's name means Golden City, likely deriving from the city's nearby gold mines. Little else is known about the culture of the city. However, we are aware that Nekaterian's protector deity was a mythological creature, a slender desert predator with a forked tail and long, curved snout. The final city was the furthest downstream, Thinis. This city is even more mysterious than Nekaterian, to the point that its exact location is still unknown to this day. However, it can be assumed that this city was a capable military power, as early in its history it conquered a nearby larger city called Abydos. Thinis had likely conquered the city militarily. However, Abydos remained culturally and religiously supreme over Thinis. Abydos's protector deity, soon to be adopted by Thinis, was called Genti Amentu, or Lord of the Dead. Previous to now, all of the evidence we have regarding these cities comes from a combination of archaeology and speculation. However, finally, we've reached a point where we have written historical records to examine, albeit ones that are pretty lacking in substance. Our first historical record comes from the Umelkhab tomb near Abydos. This tomb contains a list of kings. King's lists are an important resource in Egyptology that we'll see come up again and again throughout our explorations of ancient Egypt. Usually, they're a bit more substantive than just a literal list of kings, but in this case, the term king's list is not rhetorical. These rulers were likely nomarchs from Abydos and Thinis, and we're not sure what their real names were. Archaeologists instead just provide them with pseudonyms based on their early hieroglyphics used to mark their names, such as fish, stork, gazelle, or fingersnail. The order in which these powerful nomarchs ruled is unknown, and whether or not they even existed or not is a mystery. The first nomarch in which we have any confidence of the existence of is Scorpion I, King of Thinis. Scorpion is a mysterious figure, and almost everything we know about him is speculation. So, for what I'm going to say, just imagine that I'm saying probably at the start of the sentence. So, Scorpion was born around 3250 BC. He was also likely not born of royal blood, as early in his reign he had to fight a battle against a man named Bull likely the previous ruler of Thinis, though he may have also been a nomarch of a rival city. Regardless, there is some evidence that Scorpion was a successful military commander, leading campaigns north into the Nile Delta and against the nearby city of Nekaterian. And that's pretty much all we know about his reign. I know, short biography, right? Well, despite what little we know about him, Scorpion's rule proved to be a major shift in Egyptian history to the point where the end of his rule is used to end the third Nakata period. So, what's so important about the end of Scorpion's rule? Well, this period concluded the era of relative power parity among Egyptian nomarchs. From now on, we are in the proto-dynastic period. Egypt was not yet unified by this point, but from now on, the Nile Valley would have one dominant city that was significantly more powerful than the rest. Egypt was not yet united by this point, but, from now on, the Nile Valley would have one dominant city that ruled over the rest. The nomarchs of these cities were powerful, true, sometimes exerting rule over almost all of Egypt, but they weren't quite pharaohs as we know them. After Scorpion's death, very little is known about his successor, a man known as Double Falcon. The prevalence of his royal seal throughout the totality of Egypt, and even up into the Levant, indicate that Double Falcon may have actually briefly united Egypt under his rule. Double Falcon's royal seal appears most frequently in Lower Egypt, implying that this region might have been the base of his power. Maybe then, Double Falcon was not Scorpion's successor, 
but was rather the ruler of a rival city-state from Lower Egypt who extended his rule into Upper Egypt. Regardless, this burgeoning empire apparently collapsed quickly, as there is no evidence that Lower Egypt ever united under a new pharaoh after Double Falcon. The next Egyptian ruler we know, and the oldest person in history whose real name is known with relative certainty, is Irihor. Irihor ruled Nechen, and his rule extended all the way from Nechen in the south to the delta in the north. Little else is known about his rule, except that his reign would be the last time that Nechen held a dominant position in Egyptian politics. The next dominant pharaoh was named Ka, or as he's sometimes known, Pharaoh Arms. Ka was the last ruler of the proto-dynastic period, and, like Irihor, little is known about his reign. Ruling from the city of Thinis, he was able to extend the city's holdings throughout the Nile Valley. He was also the first... He was also the first Egyptian ruler to use the serech. The serech was a type of royal symbol that would have been used by Egyptian pharaohs throughout the Old and Middle Kingdoms. This symbol consisted of an ovular shape, with a hawk perched on top, and the king's name written in the middle. So far, the nomarchs of these dominant states have come from multiple different cities. Scorpion and Ka from Thinis, Double Falcon from somewhere in Lower Egypt, and Eri Hor from Nechen. While some of these nomarchs came close to uniting Egypt, None of them have been able to sustain these realms beyond their deaths. Additionally, there is not yet any evidence that they were able to pass their rule on to their children, meaning that there is no indication of any dynasties forming around these rulers. However, one ruler from Thinis would come to supersede all other nomarchs in an unprecedented manner. He would unite Upper and Lower Egypt permanently and crown himself Pharaoh. He went by many different names, including Menes and Scorpion II, but we'll be calling him by his royal name. Narmer. Tune in next week to hear how Narmer united Egypt and began Egyptian history as we know it. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then I'd encourage you to support the show. This can be done by giving a monetary donation on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com, by giving the show a review on iTunes, or by sharing the podcast to anyone who you think might be interested.